Hello and welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, welcome. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of white racial identity at our current juncture here in the UK. Now, in this episode, I want to talk about whiteness and decoloniality, two concepts which many of us might think of as opaque and, let's face it, kind of hard to get your head around. And yet the movement to decolonize Britain, starting with its universities, museums and curriculum, has been growing in strength in recent years. From the Roads Must Fall process movement, which began in Cape Town, followed by Oxford University and others, Calls to decenter European knowledge, experience, and beliefs are growing. Museums beginning in Birmingham are increasingly conscious of not only returning certain artifacts, but offering greater context and meaning to their displays in order not to uncritically idealize or perpetuate colonial modes of thinking. Now, with this said, only a fifth of UK universities say they are decolonizing their curriculum. And a movement of resistance has also emerged, accusing the decolonizing movement of revisionism and censorship. So what is decolonizing all about? Where did the movement come from? And what might a decolonized Britain look like? And what exactly is the relationship between whiteness and decolonization? Well, to help me answer these questions and more, I'm joined by very esteemed Professor Dr. Foluke Ifejola Adebesi, who is a senior lecturer at the Law School, University of Bristol, and whose scholarship focuses on decolonial thought in legal education. Now, her decolonial scholarship examines what happens at the intersection of legal education, law, society, and a history of changing ideas of what it means to be human. In recognition of her work in October 2018, Foluke was included in Bristol BAME Powerlist 2018, a list of Bristol's 100 most inspiring people from BAME backgrounds. She's also the founder of Forever Africa Conference and Events FACE, a pan-African interdisciplinary conference hosted in Bristol. She blogs about her scholarship, pedagogy and interrelated ideas on her website, Foluke's African Skies. Uh, You can find that at... Uh, www.folokeafrica.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Adebesi. Thank you for having me, Miriam. (laughs) Thank you. So first of all, can you tell me a little bit about how you became interested in decolonial thought, decolonial thinking? Is this a purely academic venture for you? Well, not really, but it's it's quite a long journey to get into decolonial thinking. Although I would say... uh, most of my work and most of my thinking has been actually quite decolonial when you think about uh, the meaning of that. I think it it, it it ties into why I went into law in the first place. And I always, and I think it's a quite simplistic um, suggestion from me, but I always tie my desire to study law with, you know, the international reaction and my own personal reaction to the Rwandan genocide. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it was just that um, feeling of almost, uh, you know, helplessness that, you know, watching everything happening on television and then people discussing whether or not we should stop this from happening. And you think, well, there has to be something mm. within knowledge which yeah. would help 
you know, so I decided to do law. So I thought, because, you know, everyone thinks of law as this study of human goodness. Uh, so this is why I decided to study law. And I, I think one of the first things I found out from my study of law, as many law students do, is that law is not the study of human goodness, not badness either, but it's mm. not as such, uh, you know, it doesn't give us the impetus to rush in and save everyone, which I, I had hoped for. Uh, mm. And I, I think I began to wonder why that is. So lots of my, you know, further study, like my master's, my PhD was concerned with how come uh, law hasn't been able to save the world from its own excesses, uh, mm. so to speak. And so, uh, and I think in addition to that, you know, like I said, you know, the Rwandan genocide, but being an African and living on and off in the UK for nearly 20 years, you know, you are almost caught within two worlds physically, as well as uh, almost, uh, you know, uh, epistemically. Uh, so it gives you this sense of being able to see beyond one world and seeing that these, when we say, you know, you, you say someone is caught between two worlds, you're not really caught between two worlds. You are living in this one earth. But the way in which humanity demarcates itself and creates hierarchies became apparent. And then it also becomes apparent that the law is instrumental in the creation, maintenance, and reproduction of these hierarchies. So all of my further study and teaching and research was, you know, kind of narrowed down to trying to explore these questions and how the law is instrumental or complicit in maintaining those hierarchies. And so I went from being a post-colonial scholar and realizing that post-colonial, uh, as you know, the post-colonial theory as a framework did not give us the answers. And mm. then I went into decolonial thought. And this is where I am now. So you may ask me five years from now, maybe something completely different, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, though, I think that's a really interesting place to start because a lot of people will have heard of post-colonial thinking. Um, so what is the difference between post-colonial thinking, thinkers, ideas and decolonial thinking and ideas? Well, I don't think there's a difference as such because there's a massive overlap uh, and you know, when when you think of decolonization, uh, and you would notice that I tend to use the phrase decolonial thought rather than decolonization, and I think that's because within the concept of decolonization, there are about, I would say, maybe four at least overarching and overlapping schools within within that, and one of those schools is postcolonial thought. And I think really why you've got these differences is usually because you've got theories written by scholars, but scholars have their own sort of personal context, personal and professional context in which they have lived, developed uh, and developed their thought. So mm. when you think about post-colonial thought or post-colonial theories, you're usually thinking, or most of the writers come from a background of uh, colonization, usually uh, African background or uh, Asian backgrounds. And you see that most, a lot of their writing or some of their writing, because it's quite varied within post-colonial thought. So post-colonial thought is really writing about what are the effects of colonization on where we are now. So, you know, where we stand. Uh, and a lot of, or some of the writing on um, post-colonial thought and which, you know, kind of, you know, made me slightly disillusioned, uh, seem to suggest 
that um, post, you know, we're just writing about. It's a commentary rather than um, some sort of movement to change. You know, you mentioned uh, you can uh, think of, you know, being anti-colonial as being as opposed to being post-colonial. So it felt a lot like a commentary on this is where we are. And, you know, after we've commented on that, that's the end, you know, that's all, all we need to do. And then there's some aspects of post-colonial thought which suggesting, you know, I often use this metaphor of a table. So if you think about the world we have now, or, you mm -hmm. know, this global north, say, for example, or the hierarchies of the world as a table, so the riches, the privileges, the affluence of the world as a table, then it does seem to me that post-colonial or some post-colonial thought, not all of it, is suggesting I want to be part of that table. While if you think about decolonial thought or decoloniality, on the other hand, which a lot of their writers come from the what's called the Latin American uh, critical school. And uh, one of the suggestions of why their writing is slightly different is because they have been out of the you know, colonial uh, influence for slightly longer than people who were colonized or uh, places that colonized in uh, Africa and Asia. And their suggestion isn't we want to be you know, we want to eat at this table. Their suggestion is maybe the whole point of, you know, the whole uh, demarcation of people, some people can eat at the table and some people cannot is actually wrong. And mm. maybe we shouldn't have tables or maybe these tables can be used differently. So there's a lot of almost creativity in the mm. thought, which, you know, as is suggested, may have come from because they've got longer, a longer time to sort of... Uh, dwell and reflect on the concept of coloniality itself so i would say that's the difference but they're both reactions to colonization they're both anti-colonial to a certain extent but i think where you find the differences in how it is you know these theories are being articulated is so what happens next Mm. And so in that sense, what do you see as the relationship between decolonizing knowledge and whiteness? Okay, so I think the starting point, whenever uh, whenever we talk about race, I think it's always important to note because people tend to forget that race is a social construct, mm -hmm. that race has no biological meaning. Because I think because we're so we we've been steeped into that idea, I need to remind myself as well as everyone else. No, that, I think it's uh, vital. Yeah. Yeah, that you know, race has no biological meaning. And I think the Human Genome Project, I think, done in America in the 90s and 1990s is quite instructive and actually quite startling for me uh, when I first found out about it, that there's mm. more variation within what we consider to be races than yeah. across races. So yeah. it doesn't, you know, having belonging or being racialized into a particular race has no, you know, biological significance yes i remember reading that there's more genetic diversity within africa than between africa and anywhere else in the world which would be contrary to the racial categorizations devised by kind of european pseudo scientists or they were considered scientists so actually some people wouldn't want to call them pseudo but yeah um, well, i'm sure we'll come back to that but sorry i interrupted you yeah no no no, no i mean yeah because it, it is it is quite startling to you know to find that out and then because once you find that out you have to question everything that's built on that 
on, on, on that particular concept. I mean, even racial classifications, for example, like the racial classification of black, it means different things in different places. So if it's, if we classify someone as black in America and there's something else in South Africa, for example, then how can we say that has any scientific or biological meaning? So if we start from, you know, from that point, so the point that uh, race is a social construct, then the next question would be, what has race been used to do? So it's, uh, you know, suggested it's a technology. So if you read literatures on uh, racial uh, capitalism, I enjoy uh, RDG Kelly's uh, work on this, um, or Cedric Robinson, uh, it's the most traditional one. Uh, if you read, uh, you know, uh, literatures on racial capitalism, then, the, you know, what has been written about the use of race. So race is constructed, but not just constructed as a means to label human beings, but it's used as a means to mark what human beings can do what or can possess what. You look at how it's operationalized in the Americas, for example. So the mm. fact that you can classify someone as, let's say, Native American is, you know, what we call it now, but it used to be called, you know, the Indian, which mm -hmm. is, you know, more um, derogatory. Mm -hmm. So then you would say the way in which you use your land is not uh, recognized by us. And therefore, we are allowed to take that land from you. Mm, mm. So that has a material consequence. Mm. But it also has an epistemic consequence. It changes the way we think about land. And this is where we often sort of, we elide the, or we erase or ignore the epistemic consequences of these material relationships. So the change in material relationships actually have epistemic consequences so the idea say for example and i'm using that really sort of tiny example just to illustrate the point because it, it operates in different ways in different places so you say to the native american you because you use the land in this way which is not within our epistemic knowledge us in europe then we can take the land from you and because we can take the land from you we now own the land which According, you know, to if you look at indigenous knowledge structures uh, of you know Native Americans or even in Australasia, uh, in Africa, the land wasn't something you owned. You were on the land. You were a caretaker of the land. But now we think of land as something you can own, and because mm. we can now own land, that also has material consequences in the sense that people who own land are because you've created that hierarchy of humanity, by owning land, you're placed in that higher hierarchy. Mm. And how then do you move out of that? So we then suggest, well, let's give people land rights. Let's give people back the land. But you haven't changed or addressed the fact that we actually changed the meaning of land. Mm. So we've retained the significance that one group in society opted for in its definition of what constitutes legitimate land or legitimate definition of land, would you say? And then we've discounted or then uh, as European cultures then denigrated any other definitions that other groups have offered. Is that without yeah. correct? Well, yeah, that, that's kind of, you know, what I'm saying that because because we've changed you know meaning of things because of these use of racist technology the world actually changes 
and right. we can't just change it by saying for example oh i'm treating everybody equally right right because there's lots yeah there are lots of other things that have happened because of that change in dynamic and you know to to work the land in the americas you needed you know on free labor and they therefore you go into africa and say well these people are not properly human, again, using race as a technology. And then you take them and carry them, you know, you enslave them and use them as on free labor and use that to build material wealth for yourself. You know, so, so you have uh, a tandem of dispossession and appropriation, so the making poor and the making rich. So the material mm. consequences that haven't been addressed or they're not usually addressed. So the relationship between, or the epistemic means of, say, for example, freedom, liberty, ownership, land, they emerge from how we, uh, you know, construct race, how we create this tandem of whiteness and non-whiteness. It mm. it functions in a particular way. So the decolonial movement then comes into this conversation on whiteness and Technolo as technology and says how do we undo this damage that's been caused by the um i guess would it be the implementation of one perspective as truth and law and right and acceptable well i would say at least some schools of decolonial thought and you know decolonial thought is quite varied in in which is kind of why I find it really uh, unsettling when people go, well, this is what decolonization is saying, when we, we are not, you know, within decolonial schools entirely agreed on, on what we, you know, what we're saying. But at least one school will say, how do we undo that? But I think, and I think to a certain extent, and this is why I find decolonization itself slightly misleading as a word, uh, it's, it, it, it is malleable, it is fungible, uh, anti-colonial maybe be better to sort of uh, describe or demarcate or denote what uh, you know certain people are saying but decolonial or decolonization does suggest an undoing but also going to the past um and i think one thing that the decolonial um or the latin american critical school one thing that they do suggest quite strongly is that we should be looking forward so we're thinking of or we should be thinking of what world can we create? What new world can we imagine if we address all these changes and dynamics, changes in the way in which we relate to each other, but also, and quite importantly, changes in the way in which we relate to the earth, everything around us, not just the land, but nature itself. So the commodification of labor, the commodification of people, but also the commodification of nature. If we can address those things, what world comes out at the other end? And I think that's mm. also important because if you want to do, so if you go, you know, let's let's stop this, what comes next? And I think mm. that that's actually quite important because I think to a certain extent, there are schools within the decolonial thought generally that go in, let's just distribute this more equitably let's just be more inclusive so this this these logics they're actually destroying us they're destroying the world but we're trying to say let's just include people into this destruction so let's 
include or let's diversify the faces of people who can be involved in the destruction of the earth or in the exploitation of the earth if you don't want to be as melodramatic as I'm being mm. and but where does that take us to especially if, if we're thinking you know of ourselves and you know very much as with indigenous thought thinking of ourselves as caretakers of the earth so we're not just about you know what we can get how we can live now but that other generations should be able to live on the earth then we need to rethink how we do you know life generally so it's both a deconstruction of um the past but also trying to pave the way for a better way of existing on this planet in a way that takes into consideration um i guess <laughs> Uh, not not only capitalist or monetary interests, which maybe have guided much of human endeavors uh, till this point, um, is so. I know that you said there are different types of um, decolonizing um, schools of thought. Um, did you did you say there were like four main ones? What what are the fault lines between <laughs> their outlooks, or is that is that going to take us into a very very long lecture, <laughs> which I'd be well, happy to hear, <laughs> but I don't I don't want to make you uh, lecture on your day off. <laughs> no, 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 not a long lecture. Uh, so I was talking about the table metaphor, and yeah. just kind of to you know to complete it. So. When I say four main schools, these categorizations are mine. So all the mistakes and errors and faults are completely mine is, is, is essentially what I'm saying. So, you know, I talked about the relationship or the you know, distinction between the post-colonial and decolonial with the table. So mm -hmm. one saying, let's be part of this table, which is quite similar to what I was saying about, you know, being included into the structure. And diversity that, yeah and that's where i kind of struggled because diversity is a good thing but it, you, you then go but what next what happens next why there has to be a further purpose it's not just diversity for diversity's sake and then you have the decolonial school which is you know and they use this phrase which i love so much worlds otherwise so and i think it's to a certain extent there's a lack of imagination in 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 some of the resistance to thoughts about decolonization in the sense that we're thinking but this is the way the world is what we need to do is make it better but what if you could make it different and better um what if you couldn't make this world better because the logics that run it would only continue to make it worse and i think that that's where the tension lie, lies between the post-colonial uh, and the you know, Latin American decolonial school. Now, so slightly yeah. differently, you'd have the what are you know the uh, settler, um, um, so the decolonial thought that arises from settler states, and you're thinking of uh, um, South Africa, uh, Australia, New Zealand, North America, so mainly Canada, the the US, and you know the mm -hmm. question there. So if you think about the table metaphor, it does seem that a lot of the writing is basically give us back our table. We can do what we want with it. It may be decolonial thought, but the key thing they're asking for is the table still belongs to us. And you know, you have these land acknowledgements that happened before talks where the, you know, you know, this is this is land that was, this is on the unceded territory of, you know, X, Y, Z, it was never given up. We still retain sovereignty. And yeah. there's, you know, it's very strongly 
it doesn't really, you know, the, that the key question isn't, you know, what the world, you know, whether or not we can eat at this table, whether or not, you know, how we should use the table. The key question is you don't own the table. Yeah. And that's why I think I kind of categorize them slightly differently, but they're massive uh, overlaps. But I think the fourth uh, school uh, of decolonial thought, which kind of concerns me quite a lot, is the where we are, so formerly colonizing states, so states that were in some way involved with the colonial endeavor. Because there are some states that never had colonies, but still were complicit in being enriched and exploiting the whole colonial process. Because there was, a, you know, think about, you know, you have the enfoldment of slavery and uh, colonization and the uh, almost the economic system, economic political system that arises from that. There are states when, that were not, you know, directly involved in either colonization or slavery, but were also involved in the uh, sort of the economic processes that surrounded that. So what do they, you know, what can we, when we talk about decolonization, and that's why, again, I find decolonization as a word to not always be helpful because it tends to atomize what we're trying to think about. It's kind of like, this is, let's say, a curriculum, let us decolonize it, rather than decoloniality, which to a certain extent could pervade. So realize that a curriculum in itself doesn't sit isolated. It's uh, influenced by the people who go, you know, who, who use it. It's influenced by the institution in which it sits. It's influenced by the state in which it sits. It's influenced by the uh, world in which it sits. So decolonization to, to me kind of suggests you know, that um, there's something which can be taken in, in isolation and then be uh, decolonized. So when we talk about this, you know, this third or this fourth, sorry, school, uh, can't count, <laughs> this fourth school where you have formerly colonizing states, which would, you would suggest still advance, still haven't turned away from their colonial logics. And again, you see that overlap with, you know, with, with the other schools. The question. So there's there's a t sort of almost a two uh, point question, and there's this there's this video on YouTube uh, where this uh, uh, this uh, this guy his uh, his name is Tundama. He suggests that you cannot decolonize colonialism. So his suggestion is that it is impossible to decolonize a colonizing state which still operates on colonial logics. Mm, mm. The other point to that, or the op opposing suggestion is that if the state still uh, operates on colonial logics, then it is still colonizing something. And to decolonize means to stop, to avoid recolonizing, to avoid or to mm. interrupt, to disrupt that colonial thought. And I think that's mm. why it's important to think about decolonization a little bit less atomically, a little less sort of in silos of we will decolonize this institution, or we will decolonize the museum, or we will decolonize the university, because mm. it doesn't really address the fact that this is a complex 
and almost I would, you know, I, I wrote on my blog that it's, you know, decolonization is impossible. And I do get quite a lot of questions. And what do, what do you mean by that? But, yeah. you know, it's, it's not impossible in the sense it cannot be done, but it's impossible in the sense it's not something we're just going to do, wake up one morning, do, and then move on to the next thing. Well, it's it, from from your description, at least of the fourth category in particular, we're talking about a systemic uh, problem which is ingrained at every level within European society. So I'm thinking, for example, of, you know, how do you decolonize an economy that was itself, that itself built its wealth off colonial exploitation and slave labor? Um, can you uncolonize the wealth? Can you undo the... Uh, patterns of wealth that were created and continued to be accumulated upon are there ways in which you can um, counter the uh, patterns which establish themselves I'm thinking for example you know we may no longer have colonial relationships with uh, certain sugar producing uh, states but are the terms of our economic relationships with those states ones which continue to reflect um, a colonial legacy? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think this is, you know, this is uh, it's really important to think about because I think one of the reasons why people go, well, you know, decolonization is you know, not something we should aspire to is because they think it's not something we can do. The the entire world is structured in a particular way and we cannot undo it, I think, is is their position. But I think we, we need to think, especially in the context of, you know, climate, the climate emergency, the sixth um, mass extinction that we're living through, we need yeah. to think more creatively. We need to think more... Uh, optimistically, which, you know, it's not easy for an academic to do because we kind of aren't quite pessimistic by nature. So why we, you know, we're in academia in the first place. Uh, but I think we need to think more radically because, yes, you know, you've, you've talked about the relationship between uh, colonizing states and, you know, states where sugar was uh, use of unfree and enslaved labor to produce sugar in, in, in massive, massive amounts or, you know, uh, tea plantations and uh, rubber plantations, the uh, now called the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, comes to mind. How do you reorder mm. those relationships? And I don't think it's, and this is why, you know, I'm quite insistent, it's not something that can be done in the way in which institutions are in a policy tick box uh, kind of way, trying to advance it. This is something that will take as, at least as long as it has taken to establish those logics. And noting, of course, that the logics are also pushing back mm, mm. at the same time. Yeah, well, let's talk about that pushback a little bit, because I'm interested in, um, I think the idea of uh, deconstruction is something that I have heard as one of the uh, more, um, uh, you know, I guess, open critiques. So I think some of the critiques don't necessarily come from a uh, a place of, of real consideration for the points being raised. But but the deconstruction argument strikes me as one which does uh, that is worth engaging with. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that, which is, you know, we can deconstruct, but how do we reconstruct um, out of the decolonial process 
um, you know, if we're going all the way to epistemology, you know, the, the meaning of the words that we use and we deconstruct those, um, can we undergo this process? Do you think it's realistic yourself? I know there are different views on this. Can we deconstruct it all and reconstruct? Well, I think as humanity, we're always deconstructing and reconstructing anyway. So I think to a certain extent, it's uh, probably a little bit uh, sort of suggesting that, there, you know, humanity has certain limitations. But I, again, you know, like, I can completely see why this is something that you would worry about. And a lot of, and I would again suggest that um, lots of people who are within the decolonization movement who, and, you know, we, we all go through these learning processes, but who haven't fully understood, you know, what, let's say, where, where the end goal should be. So to a certain extent, there's, you know, we are all trying to learn within that where we should go but i think what the point is we cannot because of everything that's happening because of the you know where the world will be if we don't really consider quite strongly changing our relationships to you know to nature for example we don't have a choice so whether mm. or not we can do it i think is probably almost uh, subsumed by we have to. The urgency of it. Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. And um, for people who may not have necessarily thought about the relationship between um, decolonial thought and the environment, um, do you want to maybe give us a sense of what that relationship is? I mean, is there is there a sense that um, structural whiteness in our societies is bound up with um, an economic exploitation that has a disregard for um, certain human and lives, but also the natural world. Um, is that is that something that you yourself agree with, or how do you see the relationship, I guess, between whiteness, decoloniality, or decolonial thought, and and sort of the environmental catastrophe that we're living through and yet doesn't really feel like a catastrophe unless you're listening to um a few people on the ground living on the front line yeah i mean i think you you know if you go back to what we discussed earlier you know racist technology it it had a purpose it had a function or it has a purpose and a function and the whole point is exploitation and then you know you ask yourself exploitation of what it's exploitation of humanity and of nature. So what we then have is this massive, you know, accumulation. So, you know, Karl Marx talks about uh, primitive accumulation. And I, I, you know, often reference that when I talk, you know, when I teach about this particular use of um, race as a technology. So the whole point is this accumulation, this massive, massive um, exploitation of land. So using Say, for example, you know, going back to the example of, um, you know, the Americas, where land was used by the indigenous people in a certain way. So, you know, land was allowed to lie fallow, land was used in ceremonial ways. And uh, according to John Locke, this was, you know, this was basically wasteland. You were not using the land to make any profit. Therefore, this is wasteland. So what we have now is the use of land in very mechanized ways to get the maximum profit 
out of it possible. But the result, the end result of that is this environmental degradation. So you have global warming. So you because you are you know, suggesting that unless land is used in a way that profits capital, it is wasteland. But the way in which we use the land in that way to make the maximum profit tends to push indigenous people, tends to push the disadvantaged uh, populations within any state. And you find this almost anywhere. You know, you find this in, uh, you know, in, in lots of in lots of Asia. You've got, you know, quite... Um, cramped living conditions. Uh, there's this very beautiful uh, uh, talk, uh, I think it's a TED talk, Who Belongs uh, in a City by, um, I think her name is Timei, yes, Who Belongs in a City, about how, you know, people are being uh, pushed off of uh, what's called profitable land in Lagos, Nigeria. So you have this you know, not only is the na is nature being destroyed, is 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 the environment being destroyed, but people are being destroyed so that nature can be destroyed. So there is that you know uh, relationship between race as this technology being used and the end result, which is both human devastation but also environmental degradation. Mm. And I know that you um, have uh, looked into the concept of whiteness as property, which I think is a term put forward by an American academic, Cheryl Harris. Um, can you talk to us about this notion of whiteness as property? And um, is this a concept that you're exploring in the context of the UK? What does whiteness as property mean in our context here? So, uh, yeah, so this is a very interesting uh, article by Cheryl Harris uh, in America. And, you know, and I do like, you know, that you've asked. So what does that mean in our context here? Because I do think that because America has a very, uh, well, I would say slightly because it is interrelated, interrelated but slightly different uh, history of, you know, race, racialization and, you know, uh, state uh the state's uh, complicity or role in that to mm. the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to a certain extent, we need to be careful when we bring in scholarship from the Americas and not just transplant it without actually understanding what they're, they're saying when mm. we sort of rethink from the Americas. But her argument is, you know, going back to, you know, very beginning of, you know, race isn't or has no biological meaning it's a social construct but she's saying that in the context of the americas race moves from being um or whiteness moves from being a color you know something objective one would suggest to race which is socially constructed to status and it then moves into property so it's the history makes it going from you know makes it go from color to race to status and then to uh property and what she's saying you know is um that because it moves into this concept of something that you can own then it gives it has this so whiteness has this uh, similarity with property because it gives you the right to exclude and this is you know very much a, a legal concept that if you own something you have the right to exclude other people from being a part of that of that thing so there's a you know there's a presumption of well if you own this thing either whiteness or property then other people are presumed either to be part of it or not and that mm. sort of works in the americas in the sense that there's 
if you if you're racialized as white and you know going back in the history for example if you're racialized as white there's a presumption of liberty there's a presumption of freedom while if you're racialized as black back in the day then there's a presumption <clears throat> of enslavement of property so because you own whiteness it gives you the right to exclude people from freedom and mm. um so you own whiteness as property gives you the right to exclude people from freedom and it gives you know and people become automatically or presumptively excluded or included in enslavement. So you think about how it works with, let's say, citizenship in the UK, mm-hmm. um, the hostile environment. Mm. Who is who is asked to prove that they're a citizen, and who is asked who's asked to or who is um, presumed not to be a citizen? So people who have been in this country for years who were some who were born in this country because they cannot prove that they're citizens but why do we suggest that they prove and others don't you think Mm -hmm. about whiteness as property the right to exclude from being british Mm -hmm. so there there are lots of ways in which you could think about or which you could you know but you know citizenship is one of those but also what we would consider to be good knowledge for example would also be uh, or what we would consider to be reasonableness, but mm-hmm. it, it is, you know, essentially that that uh, similarity, that you know, overlap with property or how we understand property. That property is something you can exclude other people from. And what she's suggesting here is, if we think about the way in which whiteness operates, it operates like property. It operates like something which uh, can be used to exclude other people from belonging to okay that's that's really interesting I'd actually never really um thought of it in those terms but when you were speaking it was making me think of um you know the argument that Ava DuVernay makes in in 13th about you know where where we sort of find out that a third of um African-American men will go to prison in, in once in their lifetime one one in three um uh that that presumption of freedom versus the presumption of incarceration actually came to mind in the continuity of a population that had um, previously been enslaved and obviously prison um, in in at least a documentary from Ava DuVernay's perspective being used as a continuation of uh, that form of um, human exploitation uh, but to fit kind of the new paradigm in which um, slavery was no longer considered to be uh, morally uh, acceptable. Um, So in the UK context I mean does this apply in our legal system because I know obviously you've got a very specific interest in law um how does whiteness as property manifest in law well I think it's maybe maybe a slightly academic point but it is important to note the distinction between law legal education and the legal system Mm -hmm. because while there you know I do think you know it is important to look at the consequences of the way in which the legal system operates the legals, if we focus solely on the legal system, there is a presumption that the law is fine and legal education is fine. And it may be that the people who are operating the legal system just need to change. And we go back into the uh, what could be called the diversity industrial complex or ah. the representation industrial complex. Mm-hmm. So, you know, within the concept of law and legal education itself, going back to what we've discussed earlier, there may be certain concepts which need a revisit. 
mm-hmm. before okay. we get into the concept of the legal system uh, itself. Yeah. Which also, you know, you you know, there's there's lots to unpack within the legal system, but I think it is important to note the distinctions between those three things. Yes. So you've got the law, because I think there's a tendency to think that the law is something that fell down from heaven. Uh, and then we just go off and discover it and find it. Mm. I tend to forget also that when we talk about these, you know, we talked about places that have been colonized. They had their own sort of jurisprudences. They had their own, not just laws, but their way of thinking about what is law. Yes, of course. And yeah. when we, when we, you know, I'm, I am educated in Euro-American law. That's, you know, that's my background. So there's a tendency to go, well, that's the law in almost capital letters and then everything else is you know custom and and practice but you know mm. you read indigenous uh, scholars that you know the the writings of indigenous scholars and you know christine black uh, writes from the uh, australian context for example you know the land is the the land is the source of the law it's a very different concept from you know the law is what is written down and if we say this is the law then it must be fine Constant, you know, ignoring, of course, that we've said uh, human beings can be enslaved. That's the law. That's fine. Land can be stolen. That's the law. That's fine. So, you know, thinking about the law in that way, in that, you know, sort of almost troubling what exactly the law is, the law does. Is it objective? Is it abstract? Is, I think, important to consider before we even go into the legal system, because they're, you know, the law feeds into the legal system because mm. if if we make if we consider think about it in this way if everyone who uh made use of the law in the legal system have gone through you know unconscious bias training they've gone through anti-racist training but the law itself is complicit it's it naturally almost automatically reproduces these um colonial logics and, you know, there's nothing that the people can do to stop it from producing those colonial logics. So which is why I think mm. it's important to distinguish between the legal system and the law. So mm. slightly long-winded response. No, to your that, yeah, no, but a really, really important point, because I think there's a lot of frustrations with outcome of the legal system and the assumption being that it's got to do with biases within the system. But actually, you're raising such a vital point about the problem maybe starting a lot further upstream um, and maybe not anywhere near as much attention being placed on that. Look, I couldn't possibly um, uh, not stop you on the term diversity industrial complex (laughs) because um, diversity being the buzzword of the day, um, everyone's written a book about it, everybody wants to be seen to be doing it. Um, And yet, I think there is a growing uh, movement of critics who are pointing out some uh, serious concerns with how diversity operates. So um, I'd love to hear what is the diversity industrial (laughs) complex and uh, what are your thoughts on it? Okay, so I I know I heard someone's because I don't want to I don't want to take credit for coming up with that. I know I heard someone say it before I did, but I found it really useful. So it's 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 the it diversity is, yeah. industrial complexes um is patterned on what's called the prison industrial complex in America, which you've you know referenced in a uh you know you referenced uh, Ava Duvernay's 
documentary and basically the idea that the prison industrial complex itself is a you know produces uh, itself or reproduces itself in its exploitative manner so it's that the idea behind that phrase in the diversity industrial complex is where uh, questions are raised about institutions, say they produce in equal or unequal uh, consequences, say, for example, the legal system or, or policing or education, then just make the faces more diverse, but still reproduce, so still uh, engage in racial capitalism, still be exploitative. So, but we're now diverse, so we can be exploitative. It's, uh, you know, what's, um, Angela Davis says, you know, um, a difference that doesn't make a difference. So you make, it, make things more diverse, but nothing in the way in which you operate structurally actually is any different. And where there's exploitation, which is what is being complained of, it's still the system or the structure still exploits, but you are, you are now diversely exploited. And so would you argue that that makes it harder to confront the um, exploitation once it is in many in that quote unquote diversified and and related to that, I suppose, what do you say to people who say, well, actually, it's really meaningful to me that, you know, we've had a first black president seeing, you know, Michelle Obama, um, you know, and the whole family at the White House. It was very uh, meaningful for many African-Americans. Um, what about people who would say uh, like Jay-Z, you know, we need more black billionaires, even if, um, you know, you can't have hundreds of thousands of black billionaires because you can only have a few billionaires in the first place. But what do you say to people who would argue that there is value in the diversity itself in and of itself? Well, I think there is some value in 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 the diversity because what you know one of the reasons why say in the in uk higher education why the decolonial you know discourse let's put it that way is advancing is because of the diversity in the system now so you've got lots of um academics from black and brown backgrounds and they're bringing in these conversations but i think if you think of diversity as the goal, the end, then, you know, it, it makes no difference to me if the police officer who is um, engaging in police brutality is black, brown or white. It, you know, does it does it make you feel any better? And, you know, especially thinking in a more structurally, you know, global way. Kwame Nkrumah of um, Ghana, he wrote about, you know, neocolonialism, the final stage of imperialism. And what you have across a lot of Africa today, uh, you know, you've got the supposed elections in Uganda over the weekend, is people uh, stepping into the shoes. Again, you know, you could think of it as representation and diversity into the shoes of the colonizers and doing much worse than what the uh, colonizers uh, have said, have done. You know, Franz Fanon wrote about this in um, The Wretched of the Earth, which I think is one of the most beautiful books ever written. I and have talks to about, agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, he talks about the how the, you know, the bourgeoisie, they go into this uh, anti-colonial thing, they uproot the colonial masters, and then they 
they basically they you know they've run out of steam and we see this time and time again so for us to think of diversity or representation or inclusion as a goal i think uh misses the point it's not meant to be a goal it's meant to give us the the you know the energy the opportunity the avenue to go to the next thing we need to do and i think that's kind of why i also struggle with the word decolonization because it's always suggests that we stop and i think you think about the nature of the world you don't stop moving for positive change or social justice you keep on going which is exhausting by the way but <laughs> yeah, you, know, you 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 keep on going that's what the history of the world has told us the minute you stop because of the way in which the colonial logics have shaped the world and again you know Franz Fanon says the world you know is made from these colonial logics mm. then you 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 on, until the world is completely remade and whether or not that's possible doesn't mean you should stop trying to remake the world on, until the world is completely remade to be not exploitative and we keep on making it so Mm. Wow. Well, um, we're going to have to sh bring it to a close, unfortunately, on that note. But I do have a, a very quick uh, fire questions for you um, at the end here. So um, very brief, uh, very briefly um, on these huge questions that you could probably write a book on. Um, is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? Is it even desirable or achievable? I think it's possible. And I don't know about desirable <laughs> because I think it, it kind of it kind of misses the point mm. in the fact that if the world is produced or you know we've got logics colonial racialized logics producing the world, then what we want is not producing the world. Whether or not the the world is post or not post racial, what really matters is the world is not exploitative. Mm. Um, is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Depends on who you're talking to. Because <laughs> I think I, I don't like to have conversations where it's supposed to be a balanced debate and the other person hasn't done any of the reading. But that's probably my academic coming out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, what should uh, people racialized as white who are invested in the anti-racism movement, who want to um, be part, be participants in the progress that you've talked about, but what should they be cautious about when it comes to their participation in whiteness? Well, my answer will probably apply to everyone. And again, it's, uh, <laughs> it's probably the academic in me coming out. But I think people often suggest that they know enough i think we can do and uh read and find out and learn and unlearn at the same time um it's basically you know going back to the phrase we can walk and chew gum at the same time yeah yeah okay well thank you so much um for all of your insights today um for people who want to learn more about your work about your writing i know they can go to uh your website forlukeafrica.com um is there anywhere else you can recommend for people who want to know more about what you do and say and write about everything i do and say and write about is probably turned up on the blog <laughs> one time <laughs> or the other Fantastic. Well, um, Dr. Faluke Adebesi, thank you so much for your time. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. 
please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations about whiteness. <laughs>